0: Okay, tonight we're going to, for certain, cover Genesis chapter 44, and my grand plan is that we'll also complete Genesis 45 as well, we shall see. And uh, as I mentioned out in in the prayer time, there's three great themes that come out of these these two chapters, and it's kind of uh, been building as we've been working through the 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 narrative of Joseph's life, and the three things that we're going to see here that, that really are drawn out in the lives of Joseph's brothers, most especially, is getting to the place of repentance, getting to the place where they can render sacrificial love, and seeing the divine providential hand of God working in the midst of the muck and mire of human affairs. And and that's what makes Joseph's story so fascinating, um, because all of these things come out in a big way, and um, we've seen up to this point as Joseph now is this most powerful ruler in Egypt, and he's now dealing with his brothers, ten of them initially, and then we'll see the eleventh comes into the picture, and he is he is brilliant in the way he has created. Uh, tension in these two visits that he's had and he's he's we're going to see how he actually tests his brothers for the purpose of finding out if they are sympathetic to and truly loving the other favored brother that is benjamin or whether they still have the hardened uh hearts that led them to sell joseph into slavery And so he's going to position them in a way where he tests their resolve to see if they have real repentance in their hearts for the evil that they perpetrated on him. And he's kind of using Benjamin as a test case to bring that out. And so he creates a situation where all all of the conditions are present for these brothers to affect another betrayal, a betrayal of Benjamin, um, to save their own skins or see whether or not they have learned something through all of these trials that the Lord has engineered through Joseph's authority over them to see that now they are, nope, they're going to stick by their brother, etc. And so this is what we're going to see right now. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 44, we read, this is now uh, Joseph speaking, and he commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, this, this is their second time there for additional food. And, and, uh, and once again, their money is going to end up in, in their sacks. But he goes one step further, verse 2, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that would be Benjamin, And his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination you have done evil in so doing now this is obviously a setup Um, the the brothers are leaving now with their sacks full of grain Uh, Simeon who had been held in prison awaiting uh, their return he is now freed up to go Um, they had brought Benjamin with them that was the condition upon which Joseph would release Simeon. So the brothers are leaving and they're in in high spirits. It's like, wow, okay, we resolved all that. We've got all this grain to bring back to our people back in the land of Canaan. All is well. But Joseph is working behind the scene to create yet another ruse. First of all, he's putting their money back in their sacks of food to create the impression that They paid for their grain, but then they somehow spirited the money back so that they were getting it for free. And then he does something that that would be considered really serious, and that is this special silver cup that was Joseph's was placed in the sack of grain that Benjamin had. And uh, we see that he instructs his steward to create in the minds of these brothers that that cup is... Especially important to Joseph because he uses it for divination. Now, apparently, uh, rulers of the time and and priests and shamans and whatever they had a practice of using a cup, and they would put various things in the cup. Typically, it would involve oil and water, and maybe sometimes they would use like flakes of gold, flakes of silver, even precious stones. And somehow in the combination of oil and water and these other implements, they would use that to read the spirits and they would be able to predict the future or see things that that are not obvious out in front of them. We know from tracking Joseph's life that he doesn't need any of those props for divination because he has been receiving... Uh, information directly from the Lord and been guided directly by the Lord but in order to continue to keep up the front that he is actually an Egyptian ruler and this would be something that an Egyptian ruler would do when the steward kept, catches up to uh, Joseph's brothers he is accusing them first of all of, of somehow taking their money back but more seriously that they have taken this special cup that is uh, that is Joseph's, and so this this becomes a major a major accusation that is being leveled against the brothers, and of course it gets that much worse because they chose to put the cup in Benjamin's bag, and of course the brothers know how sensitive their father is to the well being of of Benjamin. In fact, we saw in previous chapters, Jacob was adamant that nope. Benjamin's not going with you back to Egypt. I've already lost his brother. I'm not going to suffer another loss. If I were to lose him, I might as well just go to the grave. And it was only after they got desperate with food and Judah said, look, let Benjamin come with us. If anything happens to him, I will put my life on the line for the promise that we will bring him back safely. But they don't know this yet, that it's in Joseph's bag. So we carry on in verse 6 the the steward overtakes them and he spoke to them these same words and they said to him why does my lord say these words far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing look we brought back to you from the land of canaan the money which we found in the mouths of our sacks he's referring to the first time when they had come back the first time and joseph did the same thing about putting the money in their sacks he said look why would we steal the money again? We actually came all the way back here to give you the money that we spent the first time. Um, how then would we steal silver or gold from you, from your Lord's house? With whomever your servant it, it is found, let him die <laughs> and also will be my, my Lord's slaves. And he said, and this is the steward now speaking, now also let it be according to your words he with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be bl- and you shall be blameless then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack so he so he searched he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest so it's he's kind of doing this for effect right he starts starts with Reuben and he works his way down the the 12 well the 11 brothers And so, oop, nope, it's not in Reuben's, you know. Nope, it's not in Simeon's, not in Levi's, not in Judah's. He goes right down the line until he comes to Benjamin's. Uh, so, So he left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Interesting that now they have the information that, oh, goodness, the cup has been found in Benjamin's sack. And they had already made the proposal that whoever's sack should have, contain that cup should die. And now when they find out that it's to be found in Benjamin's sack, they're literally tearing their clothes. This was some uh, a practice of the time that was done when one has extreme grief. And interesting that they, they didn't do any clothes tearing when they had sold their brother Joseph to Egypt and then presented that fact to their father. It was their father, Jacob, who tore his clothes when he heard about the death, or at least the the presumed death, of his son, Joseph. And now we see these brothers who now have the realization that this treasured, favored son of their dad is in peril. At the very least, he's going to be a slave for the rest of his life, and it's not even beyond the possibility that he's executed for for this crime, Um, and so the brothers now here is another indicia of a changed heart on the on the part of the brothers presumably they could have said well looks like it's benjamin see you ben we're heading back to canaan and by the way can we have that grain on your donkey because we could we could use that back there they could have done that instead they stay together. This is something that now is new for these brothers because we have seen as we've tracked the, the the family of Jacob that this is a very dysfunctional family. I mean, everything got off to the wrong foot when you have four wives that are producing uh, all these children. And, and in the meantime, Jacob's initial desire was to marry just one woman, Rachel, but in the morning it was Leah and every, <laughs> everything kind of snowballed from there. And then for him to have the kind of favoritism that he showed to the two sons of his beloved wife, we saw, we've seen up to this point a lot of dysfunction, so much so that they were willing to first maybe even kill their brother Joseph, and then, well, wait, we can make some money here and sold him off into slavery. But things are changing in the hearts of these men because now they see that other favored son, Benjamin, in deadly peril. And rather than bail on him, they all pack up their bags and they return to the city where Joseph is. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. Now here they're showing uh, deference. They're showing respect. They're showing uh, a beg, a, a beg of, for mercy. And, uh, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Now, Joseph in this case is telling the truth because the Lord has given him that gifting. It has not been any silver cup. Uh, Joseph never claimed himself that he needed that silver cup for divination. He told the steward to say that to make it appear as something that would be believable to them, the brothers. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Now catch this next statement from Judah's mouth. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now the reason why that particular statement by Judah is significant is because he is now acknowledging the chastisement of the Lord for the wickedness of their hearts. Clearly, he is not referring to the accusations against them that they took their money back and they stole the cup from, from Joseph because Judah knows clearly they didn't actually do that. What he's speaking to is the evil hearts that they must have had at the point at which they were willing to first abandon their brother in a pit, then pull him out for the sole reason of selling him for money, then lying to their father and breaking his heart by telling him that his son, his favorite son, was dead. And and all of this this, uh, travail of, first of all, facing famine, going to Egypt, having this man who is in control of all the food in the world of just about Uh, putting them through the paces, which is their brother Joseph, unbeknownst to them, having to then leave a brother there, go back to the land of Canaan with some food, then have to face famine again and go back and now be facing all of what's going on here. These things have been put in their path by the Lord to break them down. And sometimes I don't think we appreciate enough circumstances in our life that break our will because we think that our will is something that's sacrosanct and for it to be broken is somehow injurious to us and the fact the truth of the matter is that one of the most uh dangerous attitudes we can be in one of the greatest impediments that we can have in our way in terms of being uh, in fellowship with god is a heavy dose of self-reliance a heavy dose of self-satisfaction. These are things that that are in opposition to our submission to God. And that's where these guys were. These guys kind of took a, a, a page out of their father's playbook in terms of deception, manipulation, a get for you, you know, zero-sum game, I win, you lose. And this was their mindset and the place where their heart was up until all of these circumstances. And now that's being broken down. And what the pivotal point for me is this verse 16, where Judas says, what shall we say to my Lord? In other words, I don't have any defense for any of this. What should we speak or how how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Judas is attributing to God his discernment of where they have been in their lives, and he is calling them up on it through these circumstances here we are my lord slaves both we and he who also with whom the cup was found this is this is speaking to repentance and repentance is is the door through which we receive christ we cannot stay in our prideful selves we cannot stay in our self-satisfaction and self-reliance and receive christ we just can't i mean when when Paul gave that wonderful apologetic before uh, Roman officials in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, and he's talking about how uh, he started out basically sharing Christ. He says, he declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Repentance. When we talk about works befitting of repentance, we have to understand what repentance is. It's not just reaching a place in your mind where you realize that was not good, that was wrong, that does not please God. That's an intellectual uh, 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 agreement with something that is not godly. But if it is not accompanied with a change of behavior behavior that's provoked by the change of mind, so a change of mind which leads to a change of heart which culminates in a change of action, then it's not true godly repentance. Paul gives us the, um, the distinction in 2 Corinthians 7 between verses 9 and 10. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians yet again, and, and you, know, you look at the, the, the Corinthian letters and what you get a clear impression of is this was a woodshedding. <laughs> you know, taking, taking some believers, taking a church to the woodshed to kind of straighten them out. And he's now referring to some of the, um, the uh, chastisement that he has been giving them. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your, sorry, your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Leading to salvation, he's speaking of, it leads to an action. I repent of my sin, and therefore I choose Christ. I choose Christ over what I had before. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Why does it produce death? Because you don't move out of the position that you were in when you so-called repented. Um, you know, for, for we looked at these verses, I think it was on Sunday. Yeah, I think it was John 3, 16, 17, and 18, where the Lord is presenting these two doors. There's door number one, whosoever believes shall not perish but have a life. And there's door number two, he who doesn't believe is condemned already. That's the status quo. So... Sorrow of the world produces death because death is, is where you're headed anyway. And godly sorrow or worldly sorrow has not changed that outcome, okay? So, so this is a big moment here. Uh, verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So again, Joseph is playing his hand perfectly because what he's telling them is look joseph, uh, benjamin was the bad actor here i'm going to keep him as my slave the rest of you guys are free to go now is that what joseph really wanted them to do no this was a test are they going to in the same mindset that led them to abandon him into a hole and then to uh traitors who are going to midianite traitors or whatever they were that took him to egypt or are they going to stand with their brother? That's what he wants to see. Has their heart really changed about their family? And so Ju- Judah intercedes, not, not, not to be missed, is the fact that it was Judah whose idea it was, let's let's hoist Joseph out of the hole that we threw him in so that we can sell him and make 20 pieces of silver. And now it's Judah. And this, as I said, this, this is a perfect indication of a changed heart in Judah, Um <clears throat> Judah came near to him, that is near to Joseph, and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. He's blowing a little smoke up his skirt. You're just like Pharaoh. I mean, you're a big deal. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, "We, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead as he speaks to that very one. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if we should leave his father, his father should die. But you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face, that is Joseph's face, unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, the calamity befalls him, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. So here's Judah, and he is laying out the entire chronology of this this whole affair. How they came, and when they came for grain, Joseph took it upon himself to ask, do you have a father? Do you have any other brothers? And of course, they told the truth, said, yes, we have a father, we have a younger brother. And then it was, it was Joseph who drew out of them the commitment that don't come back unless you have Benjamin with you. And they were forced to do that because of the famine, knowing, however, that if anything should happen to this young man, it would be the death of their father. So here comes the big ask that Judah makes in verse 33 and 4. Now, therefore, please, please, Let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers for how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me lest perhaps I I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now here, what we see finally developed in Judah who ultimately will be the line through which Messiah will come And up to this point, you might have been justified in scratching your head and saying, of all the 12 brothers, you're going to choose this rogue, this guy, this liar, this guy who decides he'll have a dalliance with with a prostitute only to find out that it was his daughter-in-law? I mean, really? But, But this is the way the Lord works. He takes this earthen vessel. It's cracked, it's filthy, and through... The very sinful things that are going on in this man's life, he brings him to a place where he can love sacrificially. That's what's going on here. Is now all of a sudden, Judah is willing to take, is willing to take, willing to be the propitiation for Benjamin, willing to put himself on the line instead of his brother, who, at least by appearances, is the wrong wrongdoer. It is Christ like, right? Jesus Christ was the one that got on the cross, not you and me. Jesus Christ went on the cross even though he did not commit a single sin, but he was willing to do that for the sake of us. This is this is the paradigm that Christ gives to the church, gives to his people. And it's wonderful to see in different places in scripture where you have Modeled by some of the pillars of, of the faith, this kind of sacrificial, substitutionary love. I will take the place of the wrongdoer. Here, here's one. This, this one is an incredible one. It's found in, uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 and 2. Exodus 32 is the chapter that outlines the golden calf fiasco. Moses is away on the mount with the Lord the people of, of Israel are down on the plane they get impatient all of a sudden Aaron's collecting gold from them all and to uh, quote Aaron's explanation we threw this gold in the fire and a golden calf came out what could we do right and of course the Lord is hopping mad over this and is even ruminating about just wiping these people out and starting over and here's what Here's what Moses says. And this is, this is one of the most astounding uh, conversations that I find of anyone having with God. Moses says this, he says, you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, uh, well, I'm, I, wait a minute, am I in the right place here? Nope, I'm not. Um, here we go. Yeah. Yes, here we go. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, all oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold yet now if you will forgive their sin so he's begging on the lord please lord he's interceding for his people he's saying lord please forgive these people for their idiocy but if not i pray blot me moses out of your book which you have written so 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 much of a heart does he have for his people that he would be willing to stand in their place, to take the punishment that is due them for the sake of their well-being, their salvation. Paul the apostle did the same thing, or at least he proclaimed the same thing in Romans 9, 3 and 4, where he he wrote, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And we know in uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, This is where Paul is really kind of dealing with the Jewish question. It's like the Lord has brought this salvation. He brought it first to the Jews. Somehow they've missed it. What do we make of that? And as Paul is explaining that, he he has this aside where he says, man, nobody is more heartbroken about the fact that my people as a nation are missing this than me. So much so that I wish it would be me that is accursed from Christ that is apart from Christ that they might have salvation through Christ and and this is kind of what's going going on here now in Judas life and we might project that this might be the same place that the other brothers are in is this this heart for sacrificial love the willingness to love somebody not because they're getting something from them in fact They're loving them by giving them everything and getting nothing but death in return. This is is why Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And hang on that for a moment. As I have loved you, how did Jesus love us? Sacrificially, died for us. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love For one another. This is something I think sometimes the church loses sight of. So many people that I have heard or encountered who are who are jauntist against the Christian life and coming to Christ will pin their objection on what they see in the church. They, They will see the way in which the church Exists within itself, and they will find that to be distasteful because they don't see the Christ-like principles lived out amongst that that closed group of people, and so they figure, how? Where's the power in that? And and so what we're we're seeing here is this remarkable change of heart. Uh, there's a number of different things called out in the text that that in, indicates that. Judah and his brothers have had a transformation. Uh, For example, remember in the chapters we looked at last time, at the end of chapter 43, uh, they're being served food in Joseph's house, and they're each brought out a portion of food. And then Benjamin's portion is brought out, and it's five times more than they had. And, you know, you could expect that they would react to that kind of the same way they reacted to Joseph's multicolored coat, You know, oh, he's obviously the favored one. Let's throw him in a hole. But they didn't. They all rejoiced and they had a wonderful time. They trusted each other and not accused one another of wrongdoing uh, when it came to the issue of stealing of the cup. They stuck together when the silver cup was found in their younger brother's sack. Uh, They completely humbled themselves by going back to Egypt, even though they could have returned to Canaan. They went back to Egypt when Benjamin was arrested and humble themselves before Joseph. Um, they, they knew their predicament was the result of their sin against Joseph. In other words, they had the realization that, well, by golly, we deserve this because of the things that we did against our brother Joseph. They offered themselves to be slaves in Egypt and not abandon Benjamin, the favored son. Um, they showed due concern in Judah's in little speech about how this was going to affect their father, which they seemed to have no care about when they came back to him and told him a lie about Joseph being ripped up by animals. And then, of course, Judah offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of Benjamin. These are all things that are monumental changes in their heart that God has affected, and he's affected it through circumstance. It's a beautiful picture here. So now we uh, we carry on in chapter 45, and we read there, then Joseph could not restrain, restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So Joseph now has heard this story. He's seeing the anguish on these brothers. He is seeing the change of heart in their lives. He's seeing their repentance. He's seeing their willingness to sacrificially love their, his, his biological brother. And now he realizes God's work has been completed. The family has been unified. God has blessed through adversarial conditions and adverse conditions. God's work has done enormous things. And Joseph is now overcome with emotion as he sees the Lord's plan for this family all coming uh, into focus. So, we read there in verse two, he wept aloud and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. So you could imagine, uh, you know, when a man is really overcome with emotion, is just sobbing, it's loud, uh, it's loud. Then Joseph said to his brothers, <laughs> this is amazing. I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. Now, what is being uh, conveyed when it says they were dismayed? It's a it, it's a combination of shock and terror. Shock and terror. Shock in that how can this be? How could this guy be our brother? Now, they have not seen him by this point for at least 15 years. The last time they saw him he was a 17-year-old kid. And he I'm sure he's got all the affectations of of being an Egyptian ruler. um, The Egyptians had a very specific way in which they did their hair and beards and everything like that. And, And then, of course, the clothes that he would be wearing. So there would be a little chance that when they saw him for the first time, they said, oh, goodness gracious, that's Joseph. No. So now he's saying, I am Joseph. And does my father, our father, still live? And these men are freaked out. It, 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 it hearkens to the way in which the prophet Zechariah tells us that the nation Israel will react when they come to the realization that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. Zechariah twelve ten, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. The, the, the combination of emotions that one would feel in a moment like what we're seeing in our text, it'd be hard to describe. It'd be even harder to imagine feeling like that, this combination of terror. Oh my gosh, this is the guy we betrayed. Oh my gosh, he's the most powerful man in the world save for Pharaoh. Oh my gosh, we love this guy now. Um, you know, what, what's gonna become of us? All of that is swirling around in their head. Verse four, Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. They were probably afraid to even get near him. So they came near. Then, then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And I'm sure there, there's a pregnant pause when he says that, and they're wondering Whatever comes after that statement is going to determine whether we have, whether we have lunch today or not. Um, and, and there are those uh, biblical scholars who believe that Joseph would have established his identity by revealing his circumcision. Because the Egyptians were not people of circumcision. And so that would be a way in which he could say, you know, that he could establish that he is indeed one of them. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry. Ah, here comes the big relief. With yourselves because you sold me here. Get this now. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years of the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has, made a fa- he has made me a father to Pharaoh. And that suggests that maybe when Joseph came into Pharaoh's service, Pharaoh was probably just a young person, a young kid. And the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Now here is where that third great theme raises up. What Joseph sees in all that he went through Being the the bratty little brother that his brothers hated to have around, being the brother that ultimately was abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery, being the one who uh, first is serving in Potiphar's house and then Potiphar's wife sets him up so that he's in prison for years and then having uh, the man that he actually helped out of prison forget him and leave him there for a, a time longer... And you would think if anybody could be bitter about something, if anybody could jump into this scenario with glee to get revenge on his brothers and to literally make them slaves for the rest of their lives because they sold him into slavery, it'd be this guy. What does he see instead? He sees the providential hand of God through circumstance being able to orchestrate the intense and evil actions of human beings and work in the midst of that to bring about his purpose and his plan. What's the plan? The plan is Genesis 3.15. The plan is to bring forth the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And what God has promised since the time of Abraham right the way through is that individual will come through the line that starts with Abraham and that it will ultimately travel through Judah and it will ultimately lead to Messiah. And if this famine had taken hold in the land of Canaan and Joseph was not in a position to save these men from Canaan, the whole promise would have come apart. The whole whole thing would have withered and died along with every piece of vegetation in the land of Canaan. But through, through the evil intents and actions of the very people that he has called to bring forth the Messiah, the Lord works in the midst of it. And this man, Joseph, this man, Joseph, Seize it. That's why I say he doesn't need a silver cup to divine anything. The Lord is speaking directly to the heart of this man and he is telling his brothers what's up. Hurry up, verse nine. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. That would be enough to give old Israel a heart attack. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall, shall be near to me and you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household uh, and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my bro- brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. You shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. This this is one of the great reunion stories of all time. Uh, the, The emotions that undergirded this would be as strong as a garlic milkshake and in here is this man who has been so wronged by all of these brothers and yet he has nothing but love and forgiveness for them it is he is a wonderful type of christ now the report of all of it was heard in pharaoh's house saying joseph's brothers have come so please pharaoh and his servants well and pharaoh said to joseph say to your brothers do this Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now, this, this indicates just the kind of stature that Joseph has in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, obviously, because, because um, Joseph was able to discern his dream and therefore forewarn the nation and allow the nation to make plans and now they are in the catbird seat relative to every other nation on earth because they made the plans to prepare and so now when they see the great joy that joseph has and they maybe had an inkling of the story behind his his getting to egypt pharaoh and his household are overjoyed for him and they are now showering Uh, abraham or um, uh, jacob's family with all of this wealth now you are commanded do this take carts out of the land of egypt for your little ones and your wives bring your father and come now when they talk about carts we're not talking about ox carts these would probably be very ornate very comfortable and plush carriages if you will to bring these people Uh, one commentator said that to have these carts from Egypt show up in the land of Canaan would be equivalent to landing a jumbo jet in the middle of, of people who have lived in the jungle their whole lives and have never seen modern uh, conveniences. Uh, it would be that overwhelming. That wow, you know, it would be opulent. It would be you know rich. It would be wonderful. Um, And also, uh, do not be concerned about your goods, for, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Wow. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments, and he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Now, uh, the translation there is uh, is a little bit uh, obtuse, but what he's basically telling them is, Don't get angry and contentious with each other on the way. In other words, we've just had a a real nice uh, godly uh, kumbaya moment. Don't don't mess it up on the way home. Uh, That's kind of what he's telling them. Uh, Then they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had said to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, notice how the, the change of name. Up to this point, it's been Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. In this moment, verse 28, then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Remember when he was saying, Everything is against me. He was pretty much bitter. He was depressed. He was uh, dislocated from the hand of God that had been on his life since day one. And he saw everything around him as God is against me. Everything is against me. But now as Israel, not Jacob, he says, it is enough. My son is alive. I will go and see him before I die. The one thing that is left is a question for me as we come to the end of that chapter, did Judah ever tell him, "Dad, we boldface lied to you. We we told you a lie about Joseph. We know exactly where he ended up. We know we sold him into slavery. We don't get that backstory. We don't know. Um, but according to Israel, it is enough. You know, he he is thrilled with the fact that his his son still lives. And so what you see is how the Lord orchestrated the evil intents and actions of mere human beings to bring about sanctification in the hearts and minds of these men to the point where there was true repentance. Repentance that was demonstrated by real actions, Christ-like behavior. You saw uh, Judah expressing himself in a way that made it very abundantly clear that he was now extending sacrificial love to the favored brother who might otherwise have been uh, a real annoyance to him. And we see the providential hand of God in the midst of circumstances. The challenge for us as we see that is, you know, there are parents right now. Uh, There's my brother, uh, Kevin, Kevin Edwards, uh, brother pastor there in Calvary Chapel Clayton. A week before Christmas, he loses his wife. 47 years old. She died a, day, a week before her birthday. If you're that guy, are you willing to trust the providential hand of God in the midst of that sorrow? They had a wonderful marriage. They built a fantastic ministry. Their kids are beautiful and, and, and godly. I mean, every, I mean, nobody's perfect, but you could look at Kevin's family and you could say, boy, they got most of this right. And he and his wife are a great team. And then the Lord took her. And, and my prayer for Kevin is that like Joseph, he could look at that and he could say, well, my heart is broken for the for the loss of fellowship with my wife. But God's working in the middle of this. God's got something for me. He's got something for our church. He's got something for our kids. He's got something for her greater family that is truly special. And, and, to, and to draw a comfort in that and and to be able to rest in that that that's a level of faith right there i mean that is that is really a godly orientation to life on this earth so we'll leave it there but we thank you god for showing us these things lord we pray lord that in the example of joseph we can we could draw real lessons about our lives lord Because everything doesn't come up a better roses for us each and every day. We're faced with all kinds of challenges, with relationships, with with finances, with health. Um, The the, the hits keep coming. And Lord, if we could just have the trust and the maturity of vision that Joseph had and looking all the way through his circumstances and seeing your providential hand in the midst... Lord, that, that's, that is a wonderful gift that could only come from you. I lift up my, my brother, Kevin Edwards, Lord, and his family and his church as they are grappling with the loss of Lisa, his beloved wife, and for all the other families that we know in, in, in our church and in our circle of friends and family who are suffering loss right now for the Herrera family, suffering the loss of Rose, their precious mom and grandmother, Lord, that they could see your hand in the midst of their sorrow and rejoice because your plan is perfect and your love for all of us is unquestioned. So, Father, we thank you for meeting us here tonight, Lord. We give all thanks and praise to your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.